Well, good morning. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. It's good to be back with you again. Now give me a minute while I set up my, my desk here. And so our topic this morning is looking through the eyes of Jesus. What's it like to look through Jesus' eyes? Matthew 9.36 says, But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. How do we see the multitude? You know, we're here safe in our church this morning with our families, and we're here to worship the Lord and, and claim His promise that He'd be here among us. When we look out the window, what do we see? There's plenty of traffic out there still, isn't there? And people are just going about their daily business. And they don't seem to have any care about spiritual things. They don't have any need to stop in here to worship today. Is that what you see? Or, you know, maybe... Maybe those people would like to be in here with us, but they can't. The cares of the world are keeping them away. Errands that can't be put off. Family members that have to be visited. A job that doesn't afford time to worship. There's a hospital right down the road. People are sick all the time. They just have to get by with a whispered prayer as they rush and drive from here to there or work their job today. Is that what you see? What do you think when you see those things? You know, Matthew tells us what Jesus thought. He saw that they all needed a shepherd and he had compassion for them. Is, is that how we think? Do we care about those people and why they aren't or can't be in here? You know, we might think you know, if those people have been raised Mennonite, there's a much better chance that they'd be in here with us this morning. That's not a strange thought, okay? You know, people looking out the windows of the Methodist church down the road and the Baptist church up the other way or the Episcopal church over here, they're all thinking the same thing because that's why they're there, right? They think they're there to be with God and this is a good place to be. They're thinking similar things. We think we have something better. Do we? Do we have something better here? Do we know what that is? So as I said, this morning we're continuing our topic relating to people of non-Mennonite background. And this morning we're looking through the eyes of Jesus. How do we see people from outside of our community? And do we look at them with the same compassion that Jesus would? Do we genuinely want to reach out and make them a part of us? Do we care about their salvation? Are, are we looking out at all? Several years ago, I was in a Methodist church um, over in Rappahannock County. It had maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 members. Most of the people in the congregation were older. And during one meeting, one lady said, 
Sometimes I wish that we could just close the doors and, and lock the church and just have our church family here and not have to worry about anyone else. And I, I think she really meant that to be a lovely statement. That she was just so happy to be there with her church family. But, but we know it's really sad, don't we? That's not what we're supposed to be about. So do we care about other people's salvation, other people outside of the church? Or are we just happy to be here with our family? Are we looking out the windows at all at those people going by? And do we have any concern? Well, what do we have to offer someone who's not raised Mennonite? You know, what are some, what are some reasons for being here? Now, if you were a visitor here this morning and not a Mennonite, well, you might suddenly be wondering what you got yourself into, right? Because, hey, they're talking about me. <laughs> but that's not a bad thing. You know, if you are here as a visitor and you, you have probably have the same questions that anyone has when they come and visit any church. Is there something for me here? Will I grow closer to God here? Can I fit in here? Are there friends and relationships for my family here? Just a few years ago, that's where I was sitting. I was sitting right there thinking those same questions. Is this ever going to be a place where I can belong, where my family can belong? Is this the place where we're going to be able to grow closer to Christ? You've all made those answers. You've all answered those questions, right? And that's why you're here. My answers might not be your answers, but I can tell you how I got here. And then maybe you'll have the answers to the questions of how we reach out to other people in the community. If you're from the community, maybe you'll have the answer of whether this is where you want to be. Do we, do we know who we are then? So, do we know what this place is? A lot of people like to say, they tell a story about St. Peter, and he was giving people a tour around heaven. And these people had just gotten there, and all everything was just beautiful, and there's the tree of life, and there's the river, and they're walking along, and he's showing them everything. And there's this big wall there. And one of them says to Peter, Brother Peter, what's that big wall? And Peter says, shh. The Mennonites are behind there. They think they're the only ones here. Is that us? Is, is that who we are? Do we think we're really the only ones who are going to be to heaven? Are we going to be the only ones there? Well, no, we don't believe that. We believe we have a better way. But we know we're not the judge of God's other servants. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Every one of us is individually accountable to God, and we all have to make a decision for Christ. We talk about people of Mennonite background or not Mennonite background, but the fact is, God has no grandchildren. Each and every one of you had to make your own decision for Christ. Some of you had a lot of support in that decision, and some of you had very little. But we all have to make that decision. So how is the Anabaptist way a better way? What kind of church is this? People like to say these days about their church that we're an Acts 29 church. That's pretty neat, isn't it? 
Acts 29. You look in your Bible, are you going to find Acts 29? No. Well, this is Acts 29. We're living it today. That's, that's really, that's really a, a neat way to express our, our picture, our vision for the church. We are the church moving forward today. But the problem with that is, well, we don't know what Acts 29 is going to say. Acts 29 could say that everyone became a Mennonite and they all went to heaven. Or it could say that the church fell into apostasy and died. And looking around at what's going on in the world today, that's not very far-fetched, is it? So, how would we describe our church? What's What's a good way to describe what it's like to be an Anabaptist, a Mennonite Christian? Well, a better answer would be that we're a Matthew 5 to 7 church, or we're a Sermon on the Mount church. You know, we believe that the Christian walk requires following the instructions that God gave. So we believe that each of those teachings in the Bible should have an application in our lives. Right? We read this in the Scripture, and there's something that we do in our life that reflects that. We act on the Word. So we want to be doers and not just hearers. Right? That's, that's us. So we believe each of those teachings should have an application, and we have many of those reflected in our doctrines and traditions. Right? The reason you're wearing that dress and that particular veiling on your head, the reason I wear this coat or grow this particular beard, that's an application of something in Scripture, even though none of those things is going to get me to heaven. But the combination of actually applying all these things that Jesus taught in some way, that shows that I'm on my way to heaven. The idea is to to show and to work and to continue to grow. Well, now, you might say, and especially if you're from an evangelical background, you say, oh, well, you're a works church. Right? You think that the works save you. Well, yes and no. Scripture is very clear that salvation comes from faith, but works are a required response to salvation. It's not an option to do the works of Christ. James 2, 17 through 20 says, Even so, faith, if it hath works, is not dead, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou, O man, wilt thou know that faith without works is dead? I can say I believe in God all day long. But if I do nothing about it, then my faith has no value. And that, very briefly, is who we are. So is that where you want to be? So we have, we have a lot of rules and traditions. We have rules concerning dress, modesty, the ordinances of the church. Oh, look. We even have a little book with our rules in it. So are these man-made rules? Are these additions to Scripture? I hear that a lot. Well, no. 
What these are are just simply descriptions of how we together as a church apply the tenets, the teachings of Scripture. So are those teachings, are these rules, this be one of the biggest things that would be a difference between being here and being in another church? Is that something that makes people want to be a part here? Or is it an obstacle? Well, it depends. You know, people chafe against rules. And as we talked about last night, you know, in America, the scripture is often presented as a struggle between bondage in the law and freedom in Christ. But that's not entirely untrue, is it? But it's only a partial truth. It's, it's not the whole story. We know that God's law is good. And in Romans, Paul explains its purpose to us. Jesus still demands obedience. In John 15, 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. When people read verses like this and they start to study more of Scripture, they begin to find things that they should be practicing, things that somehow should be showing up in their life. And they want to know how. How do I practice that? How do I practice modesty? How do I practice whatever? Evangelism. How do I practice? Are we practicing that in our church? If they're not in a church, well, these things are just a mystery. How do I figure this out? How do I, how do I work this out? I don't have any, any helper. If they are in a church, well, they may find that their church doesn't practice these things. And then they want to know why. For example, turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. Start at verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for even all one, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. My family and I ultimately are here because my wife read and became convicted by these verses. She read these verses and it says clearly. I should have a covering on my head. She started researching it, trying to find out more about it. Well, how do you do that? What do, what do you wear? Is just anything okay? Can I wear a baseball cap? Should it, does it have to be some kind of particular thing? Should it, should it cover everything or cover a little? Or Does anybody do this? We were going to a Methodist church, and... She tried to figure it out, and she saw pictures of hanging veils, and she cut out a hanging veil and wore it to church. Whew. You'd have thought somebody let a bomb off. Well, you don't have to do that. 
oh, that's just, that was just for, the, you know, that time and place. And, oh, whatever excuses you could come up with. No, you, you don't have to do that. And people would get hostile. Because that's, that's a, a law, that's pharisaical to be like that. We've gotten away from that. We don't have to do things like that anymore. You don't, you don't have to do that. But she goes back and reads the Scripture and, well, that's what it says. It doesn't say it's just for this time or place, right? It says we have no other custom in any of our churches. This is what we do. Now, we can make a whole message out of that. I've probably made several. But the thing is, that's how we became seekers and ended up here because my wife was desperate to obey the Scripture. And then as you start seeing one thing that you should be doing, well, there are other things. As you keep reading into Scripture and you have to think, why well, don't do this? My church doesn't do this. Am I in the right church? Is, is this the place where I should be? But now, does this one practice make this a better church? You know, that you all practice the, the head covering? <laughs> yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> because everything you do, every spiritual doctrine that you practice makes you stronger in Christ. Everything that you ignore takes you away from Christ, just as we walked away from Jesus with the children. Oh, I don't have to do that one. Well, that was another step on the way to Christ. And we just decided to skip it. Looking through Jesus' eyes, when you're on your walk, is He seeing your face? Or is He seeing your back? Which way are you going in your practices in your daily life? But there's more than one practice that makes it worth coming here, right? I have a whole little book. Let me tell you a little bit more about, about why I'm here in, in the context of, of what Jesus sees. Now turn over to Acts 8, where our lesson was this morning. Now let's go down to verse 29. And then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And then they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they, came up, when they were come up out of the water, 
The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Did Jesus see the eunuch? How did, how did Jesus see the eunuch? How did he, what did he see when he looked down and saw the eunuch? He saw a believer who was seeking and struggling with the word, and he sent someone to show him the way. I was saved in a Baptist church when I was 17 years old. It was an evangelical church. It was very evangelical. It was only evangelical. Every message preached in the church was the message that you needed to come to Christ. You were a sinner and you needed to come to Christ. Come and be saved. That was the message from the pulpit every Sunday. Spiritual growth in the church consisted of the same people being convicted of their sin over and over and over again and coming forward to fall on the altar weeping. Now, I can't be too critical. I heard the message in that church. I was saved in that church. I came to Christ in that church. But for me, the problem was I saw Philip no more. There was, there was no more teaching. That's interesting because in our, in our Sunday school class, Mark offered, oh, are we doing it wrong? Are we doing too much mentoring and too much teaching and too much, you know, hey, you're saved, go. Let's do it. <laughs> but for me, that wasn't working. I wasn't ready to go out and win more souls. And I wasn't gaining by continuing to be convicted over and over and over again. You, it was a Calvinistic church. You only have to be saved once. So why are we up here on the altar every Sunday over and over? Because there's no growth. There's no growth. We're not, we're not learning. We're not moving forward. So there was no more teaching about just how do I live out this new life that I'm a part of. Well, several years went by and I married a Methodist girl. And we set off on our Christian walk together. Now turn over to John 4. And go down to verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, what did Jesus see in this woman who'd had five husbands and was now living with a sixth man? He saw someone who was ready to hear the truth and change her life. 
He patiently worked with her. He even told her the questions that she needed to ask. Sherry's search for a place that wore the head covering, that practiced the veiling, it took us to Front Royal Church, to Strasburg Church now. And Ronnie Royster was the pastor there then. He would just call us up out of the blue and say, hey, there's a singing tonight. We're going to come and get you. He was in Front Royal. We live in Warrenton. I don't know if you know how far that is. So he would come over and pick us up at Warrenton, drive back over the mountain, and then down the valley to Peak or Pike or wherever the singing was, and then take us home. He went out of his way to do that. We would sit and talk at their place, and he would talk to us about the church, and he would ask us what we believe, and take time to be with us. He would tell me the questions that I needed to ask. Well, what do you want to know about being a Mennonite, about living a different kind of life? What's it like in the church that you're in? He would call me up out of the blue and just say, Jeff, Brother Jeff, how's your walk? I just told you I was saved when I was 17 years old. I'd been churched my entire life up to that point. I had been a Methodist, I had been a Baptist, I had been an Episcopalian. We'd been all over. We kept landing Methodist. But I had been churched all that time. Now I was in my 40s. Had three children. No one in my entire life had ever asked me, Brother Jeff, how's your walk? These are the questions we need to ask. Just like that Samaritan woman, Jesus saw someone who was ready to change their life. And he began to work with me. Turn over to Matthew 8. Now start at verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say unto you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed in that same hour. Why did Jesus answer the centurion's request? Remember the woman who wanted to be healed, he told her, 
God's word's not for the dogs. But this centurion, he, he answers. He was a foreigner. He, he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a convert. But Jesus said to him right away, I'll heal him. What did he see? What he saw next surprised him. Jesus marveled at the man's faith. Can you imagine that being said of you? That Jesus marveled at the strength of your faith. That he was surprised that your faith could be so strong. But there are so many people like this man around us. A soldier, a leader. He's a brave and responsible man. But as a centurion, he had a hundred, well, really more like 200 men under him. A century of troops. If he was a chief centurion, he had a thousand men under him. Ten centuries. So he wasn't a particularly spiritual man. He had his job to do. He served the emperor. He wasn't really looking for, for salvation. But he knows what God can do. And he boldly asked him to do it. Don't you know people like that? It seems like there's just no sign of Christ in their life. And yet they'll pray. And they'll, they'll say, I, I know God can do this. There are people like that all around us. Jesus didn't care who this man was or where he was from. He saw his faith and he rewarded it. Well, I was raised a patriotic person. God and country. And whenever there's God and country, country is always trying to get first. All right? It's, it's real good at that. Well, it's election year. You know that. You can see that all around you. I studied history in college. American history. And English literature. And ancient history. As I got out of college and got married, I became part of a reenactment group. Because I loved American history so much that I wanted everyone to know it and to see it. To see the sacrifices that had been made for them, for the country that they were a part of. You know, the freedom, you know, all soldiers like to say, you know, freedom has a price. Right? That price is blood. So what's good about America? And what I always saw was, well, if good men are willing to die for an idea, this idea of liberty, well, there has to be something to it. You know, the sacrifice that this country was made from, was born in, I think over the years, it's uniquely equipped the people here to understand Jesus' sacrifice. But we can never quite make that split. Country is always hanging in there, always trying to be first, or trying to be the same as God. As we started to attend Mennonite church, I struggled with non-resistance. But Jesus saw in me that there was faith. And He kept working with me and He kept bringing me people who were willing to challenge me on the things that I believed and the things that I held very dear. And finally, my wife bought me a book, Mennonites in Europe. And I read through that book and all of a sudden non-resistance made sense. Why I couldn't get it out of the Scripture I don't know, but reading the stories of the martyrs and what they went through for their faith and the fact that they were willing to go to the pyre 
or go through horrible tortures and not fight back because that was what spread the gospel. That, that resounded with me. And I saw that same sacrifice that I saw for liberty in the 18th century, in the 16th century, for Christ. And I realized, you know, when you die for this country, you die for something temporary. You die for something that's going to be gone maybe Tuesday. <laughs> so, but when you die for Christ, you're gathered to Christ. You've died for something eternal, something in eternity. And it was only in this Anabaptist setting that that vision was available to me, that I could see that. You know, John Risser had worked with me and prayed for me. And when I gave my testimony, when I joined the church, and, and I said it was reading about the martyrs that finally brought me around. And he, he asked me afterwards, well, how long, how long have you had Mennonites in Europe? How long have you been reading the, about the martyrs? And I told him, oh, I guess it took me a couple of months to read through it. And he said, well, what took you so long then? <laughs> because it should have been obvious to me, you know, right from, from that moment. But that was love. You know, John had been, had been praying for me daily, his family told me, and, and those prayers worked. Jesus looked down and saw, and he gave me the teacher that I needed. And he gave me the sources that I needed. And then I understood non-resistance. Turn over to Acts 10. And down to verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all, who's who, all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Jesus made Peter see that the gospel was for everyone. The invitation was open to everyone. When we started attending at Bethesda, one by one, my family started joining the church as I was going through my struggles with the doctrines. My, my wife joined the church. And Art, our deacon, we were sitting in the basement and he said to me, he said, you know, the invitation's open for everyone. And I said, yeah, okay. My daughter joined the church. And we were sitting in the basement after her baptism, and Art said, you know, the invitation is open to everyone. And I said, yeah, I know. And it occurred to me, you know, I'm doing this leadership thing, this headship thing, all wrong. Because my wife's joined the church, my daughter's joined the church. How am I going to lead my family when they're leading me? And eventually, I joined the church as well. You know, one by one, we were each welcomed into the church with joy. 
And I talked to Ronnie about what it was like. They were first-generation Mennonites, if you want to put it that way. They had come into the church. And I asked, well, how do people welcome you? Because it's so cultural. It's so family. And he said, well, you know, a third of the people are really glad you're there. And a third of the people just think you're just like everybody else. And a third of the people think you'll be gone in three years. I've never seen any of that in the church. Since we've been in the church, we've been welcomed every. Well, I'm standing up here. <laughs> you know, we, we've been welcomed everywhere. And people, all people, have been blessed and happy and glad that we've come into the church. There's no sense like the circumcision that there are some people who just can't be Mennonites because we're Christians. We all want to be Christians. And this is just a practice of our faith. And when people see the practice, we're convinced that they're going to want it. They're going to want to share in, this, in these practices because they do something positive for them. But no one ever said that we wouldn't make it in this community. No one said, well, they'll be gone in three years. Can anyone forbid? No one even tried. Now turn over to John 9. Let's start at verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. So what did Jesus see when he saw the blind man? who'd been blind since birth. You know, we see a terrible tragedy. This poor man, he's, he's been blind from the day he was born. The disciples were certain somebody had to sin for this to happen. Who was it? You know, we, we need to go find them and deal with them because this is a horrible, awful thing. But Jesus saw the mind of God. He saw that things have more importance than their immediate infect, effect. You know, things that might look harsh to us, well, if they're God's plan, we know that God's plan is always for good. But the focus isn't always where we think it is. After I joined the church, a brother in our church fell. They fell hard. They committed a crime against a child, and he went to prison. And the day that his excommunication was announced in church, he's out of prison now and he's been redeemed to the church. So. But, but the day that we got the announcement of his excommunication, it was told what he had done. And we were leaving the church. And my children were little. And we're driving down the church driveway and this little voice comes from the back. 
Daddy, why did he do that? How, how could he have done that? He was our friend. We visited their house. We would do things together with them. We were there with the children a lot. And nothing had ever happened to us. When I was outside of the church and we first had children, there were a lot of things like this going on and in the news. And I had said, if anyone were to ever touch my child like that, I will kill them. And I meant it. And now I'm a non-resistant Christian and this has happened in my church community and I'm driving down the driveway of the church and my child is asking, Daddy, why did he do that? And I said, sweetheart, that might have been because God wanted me to forgive him. I never could have had that kind of forgiveness outside of this church community because of the teaching of the non-resistance that I had struggled so hard with, because of the teaching of love. Now, some people in our church think I still haven't forgiven that brother because I placed restrictions on him in the church. But I keep telling people, you know, I'm not going to get an alcoholic a job as a bartender. <laughs> we need to watch out for him and we need to protect him the same way as we need to protect everyone else. But that thing could have happened just because I had that anger in my heart and God knew that I needed it out. I needed to forgive. Turn over to Luke 15. And down to verse 20. We're just going to break in the middle there and snatch out a verse. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, of course, this is the parable of the wayward son. I was never much of a holy kisser. It was maybe one step too far coming in from the world. I mean, our um, young people today even say, well, you know, it's, people think you're homosexual. And it's not, it's not uh, well, it's not hygienic, right? You might get the COVID. And so I wasn't, I struggled with that. And Brother Ben helped me with that because on the way out of church, he'd grab me by the hand and pull me in and give me a holy kiss. So I began to loosen up a little bit with that and realize, you know, that was because he loved me. And he knew 
I needed to work on that, and he was helping me to share in that. Well, after being in the church a little while, my, my father passed, and he lived over in Madison, uh, and the funeral was over there, and it was just um, it was a great ordeal. Uh, my mother was already losing her mind, and we hadn't realized it yet. And um, trying to get through the funeral was, was pretty hard. But I think as a father burying your father, excuse me, I don't think there's a lonelier time for that. I don't think there's any time that you feel any more alone when you're there with your wife and children and your mother and burying your father. Because you have to be for everybody. I had to comfort mom and, and try to keep her together. I even had to comfort my wife. You know, it was, you know, she missed him and was worried about me. And, and the children had all lost their grandfather. And everybody's crying and being comforted all the time. And you just have to hold it together and get these arrangements done and, and get everything, get through it. And I was standing there by the coffin and people were coming in and it was dad's friends, people I hadn't seen for, for years. I always wonder how people find out about funerals. <laughs> you know, I guess, do you read the obituaries every day or what? <laughs> but yeah, people came from, from far away in, in for Dad's funeral. And he'd been pretty much a hermit for the last you know, 15 years of his life. You'd think all those, you know, wouldn't have so many strong relationships. But I was watching people come in. There were mostly people, like I said, I really didn't know and didn't have much to do with. And then my mother was there, you know, drying her eyes and... And, and Dad was, of course, behind me in the coffin. And, and all of a sudden, I just felt so alone. And I just didn't know what I was going to do. And the first brother came in the church. And he went straight down that aisle and took me by the hand and gave me the holy kiss. And I wasn't alone anymore. I had a family. So, don't give up the holy kiss. You know, I like to say, you know, people might say, well, Paul didn't know about germs or whatever. You know, God knows about germs, all right? You know, they, in, in the 15th, 1500s, they had the bubonic plague, right? They knew about germs. <laughs> Did they give up the holy kiss? Don't give it up. Turn over to Luke 5. And down to verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city, we read this verse last night, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. What did, what did Jesus see? He saw a man who needed to be healed. And he had mercy on him. Just like that. You know, when we're healed, we can be used by Jesus. Or maybe it's being used that heals us. 
When I joined the church, I promised myself that I wouldn't tell her no. That I would not say no to the church. That's a much better promise than the other one I told you about. And a few years ago, I was asked to be in the lot. And I kept my promise. I, I really don't know, I'll probably never know, what Jesus saw to take me in the lot over two other wonderful young men who he would have serving him for another 40 years, <laughs> you know, longer than, than he'll have me. But I'm grateful. To do his work in this way, to handle his word, to be his vessel, to care for his flock, these things are all incredibly healing. And I told you about the man with the, the tattoos on his face, and I told you that we all have scars from our former lives. I have a lot of scars. But up here, and working with my congregation, they start to fade, they start to go away, and it heals. You know, his work's not a burden, like Jesus said at the well. It's food. It strengthens us. It grows us. And this couldn't really happen in any other church. This couldn't happen in a, in a Methodist church or a Baptist church. Or a, because well, if you want to be in the ministry, you've got to decide that. And you go to school. And you get your degree. And then you, you know, start to work your way up. And you try to find jobs. And churches hire pastors based on their... Yeah. And here, we draw our ministry from the congregation. And I think it makes a huge difference in, in our churches. It made a huge difference for me. I asked one brother, he's, uh, he's about my age, and he's very wise, and he's very funny, and he's just... And I asked him, how did you escape being ordained all these years? And he said, well, unlike you, I kept my head down and my mouth shut. <laughs> but I think our church is much stronger for the fact that we ordained from the brotherhood. We're not bringing someone in from the outside to bring their will and their ideas to us. We're choosing people who we know are, are like us. And, and that strengthens the church a lot. Turn over to Luke 7. I'm sorry, verse 11. And now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. And then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. What did Jesus see? He didn't see a dead man. 
He saw a mother's grief. And he had compassion on her. This young man was raised solely to take away his mother's grief. It had nothing to do with him at all. It was for his mother. Jesus raised him from the dead and presented him to his mother so that she wouldn't cry. Isn't that lovely? I, I just think that's just a beautiful picture of Christ's love. Well, not quite a year after I was ordained, I had a heart attack. It was the day before Mother's Day. And we really didn't know. It was a Saturday. I always tell people, never have a heart attack on Saturday because they're not doing anything with you until Monday. Okay? <laughs> That's just the way it is. And in fact, on Monday, there was somebody else who has a worse heart attack than I was, and so I had to wait while they dealt with him. On the ride while at the hospital, I, I said, I have to preach tomorrow. And the doctor told me, well, we're going to keep you overnight because we think you're having a heart attack and you, know, you, need to, you need to rest and we'll do tests on Monday morning. And I said, no, I have to go home. I have, I have to preach tomorrow. And he was uh, an, an Indian man, I think, or Indonesian. And he was just beside himself. He was just like, and he, he left the room. He was, he was so angry. And he came back a little later and, and he said, no, now what's, you have to stay because we're going to do this test in, on Monday morning. And it's like, I can come back Monday morning for the test. I have to preach tomorrow. I said, do you not understand? You could die. It's like, no, I have to preach tomorrow. And so he went out. And the nurse came back in and she said, you really upset the doctor. <laughs> and they took blood and after a while. And, and, he, and he said, the nurse told me later, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's, he's just going to go home and I'm afraid he's going to die. He's having a heart attack. I know he is. And the blood work came back. And so I was having a heart attack. And so he came back in the room and he was very firm. And he said, now, the blood work has come back and you are having a heart attack. We are calling an ambulance to take you to Winchester and you are not going to preach tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called poor Jonathan and he had four hours to create a Mother's Day sermon, I think. On the ride in the ambulance, the, um, the EMT was a woman, and she, um, she had been a missionary, or her father had been a missionary. She'd been on the mission field with her father. And now um, she was back home, and she was trying to get prepared to go on the mission field again. And she's a very Christian lady. And, and she said on the way there, okay, now we're going to pray for you, okay? So, you know, so let, let's pray together. I'm going to pray for you. You don't mind. I know you're not going to mind because you're a minister. See, they had ratted me out in the church. So everybody already, at the hospital. So everybody already knew I was a minister. So I couldn't just like lie low or, or start crying or bawling or everything. I had to show my faith. I had to be strong. <laughs> and so she told me her story. Though they had come back from Africa and her father had gotten everything together to go back again. And he said, now, I want to go to the beach you know, one time before we go back, because he figured they were going to spend the rest of his life over in Africa. And so they went to the beach in Carolina, and, you know, it's a nice flat beach and all, and it's beautiful. And he walked out, he and his daughter walked out to the edge of the ocean, and, and he said, yeah, it's just so lovely to be here and see this today. And he dropped over dead. 
right in front of her. And so she'd been struggling with that all this time, but now she was, she'd gotten her paramedic certification and she'd gotten hooked up with a ministry back there and she was going to go back. And um, so she prayed for me and I prayed for her. And she was like, you were supposed to pray for you. I was like, I don't need to pray for me. You're praying for me. God's got me handled. You know, I'm here to pray for you. I'm supposed to be a minister. Well, then they got me into the room. And that was probably the first time I had been alone. Uh, when they put me in the room and everybody went away. And Sherry wasn't to the hospital yet. She'd been you know, going to follow the ambulance, but she went to get some things. And, and all of a sudden, it started to hit. Well, I could be gone. I could be dead tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not one of these people who always has their affairs in order. And the first thing I start thinking is, what a horrible mess I've just left for my wife. And I don't know, I wasn't too convicted by that because I still have a horrible mess out there. But what is she going to do? What's she gonna, how is she going to finish raising our three children without me? What's she going to do without my income? And, and, I just, and there was nobody there to comfort me. And I said, you know, God, what am I going to do? What are you doing here? You know, I was just ordained. What, am I fired? Have I been doing that bad a job? <laughs> and then I just thought, well, I just have to trust you. And God, whatever, whatever you're going to do, I trust you. And at that moment, I had peace like I had never had in my life. It probably made me a worse patient because then I was just able to joke with all the nurses and the doctors and I don't think they really care for that. But, <laughs> but I had that peace. And God spared me for her. Maybe for you, I don't know. Maybe you like long sermons. But, <laughs> but I know that he spared me for her, just like he spared this young man for his mother. Um, turn over to Mark 2. And right at verse 1. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that he was no longer, there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus saw this man's need. He saw his problem was his sin. But he also saw the faith of his friends. Now, I'm an only child. And when I was young, my parents basically separated from their families. Um, they stopped visiting, stopped going back. So I, I really only even have two cousins that I know, despite the fact that my mother was from a family of nine. Because I just never met them or got to know them. Dad was gone. Mom was in a home. She'd lost her mind. And there was no family to support my wife and children 
when I was hospitalized in Winchester, you know, more than an hour away from our house, and the congregation stepped up. They brought the children every day. And, you know, that's an hour, that's two hours of driving just to bring the, the children up. My ministry brethren came to visit me. Ministers from other churches came into the hospital to visit me, to pray with me, to sing with me. The, you know, one couple even went back to the recovery room after my surgery with my wife. And you don't, you don't want to see that. <laughs> after I came home, they brought meals for support. They never neglected us. So I was an only child. And now I have 60 close brothers and sisters. And Jesus sees their faith. And he heals me for it. I turn over to John 9. And down to verse 4. And Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. After my heart attack, basically as soon as I could walk around, I went back into the pulpit. And I had another minister tell me, well, you really don't look that great. I, I don't, I'm not sure you're ready. And some of my church members were very concerned. And, and they said, you're, you're, pushing, you're pushing way too hard. But I told them, God has spared me for the work. And I need to be about it. And so I started to preach again. Maybe, maybe too soon. I don't know. Maybe that's why my sermons are still too long. I'm trying to get those back out. <laughs> Why does God save us? What does Jesus see? He sees the potential. He sees what we can do for him. He sees the other people, the people out there that we can reach for him, that we can make part of that one body who are going to be part of his body, part of his bride. He, he sees those things and he uses us and he heals us. And sometimes we just have to get up and go and do the things that he asked for us, asked of us. When I first went home, I didn't know if I was ever going to do anything again. And I was sitting there and they had me in the wheelchair at the edge of the hospital to get into the truck. And they brought up this other fellow. And he was an older man. He was, well, he's older than me. <laughs> and he was just all busted up. And he had his leg up like this and his arm was in a frame and his face was just all scratched up to pieces and and I said brother you look worse than I do <laughs> what happened to you and he said you know when the children took that four-wheeler down that hill it just looked easy as could be <laughs> but he was looking forward to going home and he gave me a little inspiration to somehow manage to climb up into that truck so maybe I'll get a smaller car. I don't know. <laughs> God strengthens us for what he has for us. He spares us for the work that he has for us.
So what do I have? Why, why be here? Why not be anywhere else? Could all of this have happened in a different kind of church, in another church? You know, from the outside, this can look to people like a closed community with a bunch of rules designed to keep people out. But nothing is farther from the truth. All these things we have came because the community opened up to us. Because the people in my church loved us, welcomed us. And they, are, they saw us through Jesus' eyes. They were willing to open their home to strangers and to build them up, to take the time to invest in us and to build us up in Christ. So our faith has been strengthened. We live in community. We've grown in our understanding of the Word. Our prayers have been answered. We've been set to God's work. We've seen and received miracles. That's, that's a lot of gain for coming to a place. What in this church makes that happen? Why can it happen here more than maybe anywhere else? The simple answer, the short answer, is that God's Word is clearly taught and practiced here. When we talk about loving one another, we talk about reaching out to one another, we talk about clearly taught and practiced doers of the Word and not hearers. That's the foundation. No church can succeed without it. And that's why you're going to fill this church with people from this community.